Today, we'll begin to go through the Bible book of Colossians in the New Testament. Our goal is to study this book in order to understand its message and the principles which believers today can use to increase their devotion to Jesus Christ and to live lives that are worthy of his calling. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I turn to a book like Colossians, it seems like I'm reading someone else's mail. And that's partly because the book of Colossians is a letter that was written by someone almost 2,000 years ago. So not only are we attempting to understand what we might call an antique piece of correspondence, But we're looking at an English translation of that letter, which was originally written in the Greek language. In addition to the language gap, we are seeing descriptions of people, places, and events that happened in what we would call a foreign country, which is quite a different culture and environment from our own. But just as we would handle any letter, whether ancient or modern, we need to determine what message the author of this letter intended to communicate. We are not free to interpret the author's words any way we want to, because it's the author's intended meaning that we need to understand. This is exactly the same approach that the original readers of this letter would have taken, and it is the common approach today for really understanding any type of communication. These words were written by a real person to other real people who were in a situation where they needed to hear an important message with some relevant information that would help them to handle their circumstances. And with that being said, let's dig into the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. One of the first things we notice about this letter is that the format is different from letters we may write today. In ancient times, letters would start with what we might call the signature. In other words, who was writing the letter? The signature would be followed by the address, or who were the recipients. Then there would be a salutation, an ascription of appreciation, And finally, the body of the letter, followed by the closing remarks. Paul gives his name as the author. So, who was Paul? If your Bible has a subject index or a topical concordance, you could look him up and see many references to Paul starting in the Bible book of Acts, which is the historical account of the beginning days of the church. The first reference I see is Acts chapter 13, verse 9, which says, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. This tells us that Paul was formerly known as Saul. So a quick search, starting in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, gives us an amazing account of who Saul was how he came to trust in Christ for his own salvation, and how he became the man Paul, who we see here writing the book of Colossians. By Paul's own testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, we see that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Well, that's quite a pedigree from a Jewish perspective. But when Paul looked back on his so-called accomplishments during his youth, he considered himself, quote, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. Later in his ministry, when he defended his apostleship against attack by false teachers in the city of Corinth, Paul correctly claimed that he was, quote, not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Those false teachers were boasting of their qualifications, so Paul answered them in kind in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 through 28. He said, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Wow, (laughs) what a statement by this man Paul. Now, after telling us his name in the book of Colossians, Paul then gives us a brief description of himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was an important office that was active during the early stages of the church. It involved the work of laying the foundation for the New Testament church and recording divinely inspired instructions for the church age. We know this because that's how the work of an apostle is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 9 through 11 and Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. Paul says he is an apostle by the will of God. Paul's apostleship was not of his own making or choosing, nor was he appointed an apostle by the church. He was an apostle because God called him and set him apart for this office. Now, you can read more about Paul's calling in the book of Acts, where Paul repeats the story three times in Acts chapter 9, 22, and 26. In order to be an apostle, one had to be called to that office by Jesus himself. So beware when someone claims to be an apostle today. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explained how Jesus appeared to several people after his resurrection, and then he said, 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. Jesus confronted Paul and called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In Paul's own words, he said, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Acts chapter 13, verse 47. I would really encourage you to learn more about this giant of the faith. This is the man, Paul, who is writing this letter. One Bible scholar went so far as to say that apart from Jesus Christ himself, the Apostle Paul is the most important and influential person in history. Almost half of the New Testament books were written by Paul. By identifying himself as the Apostle Paul, he was establishing his authority for writing this letter to these people. Paul goes on to say, And Timothy, our brother. In most of Paul's letters, he would typically mention the name of someone who would have been familiar to the intended audience. In this case, Paul associates himself with Timothy in the heading of this letter. This does not mean that Timothy was the co-author of the letter, but that he was someone with Paul at the time he wrote the letter and someone who would have been respected by the readers. You can read more about Timothy's life and ministry starting in Acts chapter 16. Notice that Paul is an apostle, but Timothy is a brother. This tells us that once the foundation of the New Testament was completed by the apostles, there wasn't a need for any more of them. The remaining work of building the church was carried on by faithful brothers who ministered to the needs of the church, and Timothy was a stellar example of such a brother. Colossians 1 verse 2 says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In verse 1 we saw the author, and here in the first part of verse 2, the address is given, in other words, who were the recipients of the letter. Paul says, to the saints and faithful brethren. Saints is the Greek word hagioi, which could be translated holy ones, or ones who are set apart by God. This letter is addressed to believers in Jesus Christ, whom God has set apart as his own special people. These saints are further described as faithful brethren. Faithful is the Greek word pistos, which could be translated believing, or it could be translated faithful and steadfast. Pistos carries the idea of firmness in faith or fully trusting and therefore trustworthy in their commitment to the Savior. And brethren or brothers indicates the close family relationship in the household of faith. This letter was intended to be read by people who had heard the gospel message of salvation through the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf and his resurrection. These people were fully trusting or relying on that truth for their eternal salvation. For a succinct statement of the gospel message, see Paul's earlier letter to the church at Corinth, where he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says that these saints who are faithful brethren are in Christ. 
So if there were any doubt about the spiritual position of the recipients of this letter, we see that they are in Christ. Because of their faith and trust in the work of Christ to purchase their salvation, the Holy Spirit has set them apart and placed them into the body of Christ. As Paul says later, their lives are hidden with Christ in God. When God looks at the believer, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ, because believers are placed in Christ. So these believers are spiritually in Christ, but they are physically located at Colossae. So where in the world is Colossae? According to ancient sources, Colossae was one of the earliest and most important cities in the Lycus River Valley, which is located in what today would be southwestern Turkey. It was in a region called Phrygia, and as early as 480 B.C., the Greek historian Herodotus referred to it as a great city. It was on the established trade route, between the Aegean Sea and the Euphrates River Valley, way to the east. In fact, Persian kings, Xerxes and Cyrus the Younger, both marched along this route during their military conquests. Around 400 BC, the Greek historian Xenophon wrote that it was, quote, a populous city, wealthy and large, end quote. But later in Roman times, the commercial road was rerouted through the nearby city of Laodicea. So Colossae became what a Roman geographer Strabo called a small town. One Bible commentator said that Colossae was the most unimportant town to which Paul ever wrote a letter. (laughs) In New Testament times, the population of Colossae consisted mainly of native Phrygians and Greek settlers, along with a number of Jewish colonists who had come to that area around the time of Antiochus III in the 2nd century BC. In Paul's day, Colossae was a small market town, focused mainly on produce, such as olives and figs. The many sheep that were pastured in the area contributed to a wool industry which included the production of a popular wool dyed a dark red or purple. In the first century AD, the Roman historian Pliny wrote about the purple wool that Colossae was famous for. It was made with a dye from the cyclamen flower, and the Latin word for purple wool, which is Colossinus, seems to have been derived from the name of this city where it was produced. The native Phrygians had a tendency to emotional outbursts of religious expression with uh, exciting music and frenzied dancing. There were many pagan Phrygian deities, and Rome would typically import different foreign deities into their culture. But when Rome imported the Phrygian rituals, many people considered them too extreme and were not allowed to participate in them. (laughs) Now, the area of the Lycus River Valley is prone to earthquakes, and there was a major earthquake about A.D. 60. This is close to the time when the Apostle Paul was writing to these people. The important cities nearby were quickly rebuilt, but Colossae continued its decline. 
It was sparsely populated as the residents moved over to the more prosperous commercial centers of Laodicea and Hierapolis, just a few miles away. Unlike many sites that are mentioned in the New Testament, the city of Colossae was not really studied by archaeologists until very recently. In this 2022 photo looking south, you can see some recent activity on the Acropolis mound of ancient Colossae. On the left side, there was a 5,000-seat amphitheater that's been identified, which is on the eastern slope and it may be located near the Agora or marketplace that's close to the city's main north-south road. There are sections of columns in nearby fields, and some of them may mark the location of an early church. A cemetery has been found north of the Lycus River. There are two main types of burial monuments, uh, Greek tombs with an outer room attached to an inner space, and tumuli, which are underground tombs with stepped entrances from the surface that lead down to the place of burial. One Colossian burial monument dated to the late 1st century AD was discovered about a century ago in a nearby city where it had been taken from the ancient site and put on display. Now closer to the Lycus River, there are water channels that are visible. These were carved out of rock with complex sluice gates and pipes that allowed water to be diverted from the river for irrigation and washing and probably commercial or industrial uses too. An early 2nd century AD inscription on the base of a marble statue honors the repairer of Colossi's baths, showing that these pools were one of the city's important institutions. Many Roman coins from Colossae show the name of the city, of Roman officials, and various gods, including Artemis, Helios, Dionysus, Demos, Bule, Tyche, Isis, Serapis, and even a local river god. The coins show that the typical Greek and Roman deities plus Phrygian gods were worshipped in that region. Hopefully more information will be uncovered as the archaeological investigation continues. Colossae was largely abandoned by the time of the 5th century A.D. Then it was attacked by Muslims in the 7th century A.D., and it was totally destroyed in the 12th century A.D. So the evidence from archaeology and ancient manuscripts shows that Colossae was really similar to other cities in Asia Minor during the Roman period. Greek was the main language. They issued their own coinage, and they lived according to typical Roman customs. The people had families and servants. They understood Greek. They used Roman money. They worshipped various gods and deities, and they worked primarily in agriculture. These are the people that Paul is writing to in Colossae. In the last part of verse 2, we see the salutation of the letter. Today, we might write, Dear Sir, or if we're addressing a family member, Dearest Aunt Lucy. Now, in Paul's time, the salutation was often expressed using a form of the Greek word rejoice, which is kairain, that was used to mean, May you be glad, or I wish you well, or simply greetings. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Among the Jews, the customary greeting was the Hebrew word shalom, peace. 
So the Apostle Paul typically combines these two salutations in most of his letters. He used the Greek word charis, which is a form of the word kyrene, that expresses the unmerited favor or grace of God, which is his goodness toward those who cannot earn it and don't deserve his favor. And then Paul adds the Greek word for peace, which expresses that inner harmony that we have because of our restored relationship with God. Paul expressed it in the form of a wish or a prayer, grace to you and peace. And notice that the source and provider of these blessings is God our Father. Now that we've introduced this letter, we'll pick up the next section in the second lesson of this series. Until then, think about the things we have seen so far in Colossians and ask yourself these questions. What is the status of your own faith? Would the Apostle Paul consider you someone who is set apart for God, one who is fully trusting in Jesus for your personal salvation? If Paul were writing to you, could he address you as a brother in Christ? If you're not sure, then you can fix that right now. Being a Christian means that you've learned about what Jesus did for you when he came to earth as a man to take the punishment which you rightly deserve as you face a holy God. He voluntarily went to the cross to suffer and die in your place, and after paying the ultimate price for your sins and mine, he rose from his tomb on the third day. Now understand that you can know these facts, but still not be a Christian. Jesus did this for you, and he freely offers you the gift of salvation and eternal life with him, but you need to fully trust in what he did for you. The Bible talks about having faith or believing, and this means that you know what Jesus did for you, you accept that it's true, and you're completely relying on these truths for your eternal destiny. It seems simple, but it may be the most difficult decision you'll ever make. Simply acknowledge what Jesus did by dying for you and tell him that you're trusting in that alone to reconcile you to a holy God. It's the only hope that any of us have, and it's the most important step you can take in this life. As it says in the well-known verse, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life.